I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to give you another instalment in our ongoing series, 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Although... This week, it's a bit of an exception, because my choice this week is a movie that you probably won't see before you die, but it's okay, I've seen it for you, so you don't have to, but you do have to know about it. My choice is Jeremy. Hey, yo. Susan, let me ask you something. What if I hadn't been sent out to get a piece of chalk that day? Probably would have never met you. You believe in things like that? Like what? I don't know. Like fate. Uh, I don't know if I do. I think I'm too practical. Oh. I believe in those kind of things. So, if you're a regular, if you've heard me on the radio or read any of my books, you will know about my obsession with this film, Jeremy. But just in case, let me fill you in on the background. So back in 1973, 1974, I was 10, 11 years old. And every weekend I would go to one of my local cinemas. I grew up in Finchley. And there was a couple of cinemas that I could get to by bike or by bus. And if you went by bike, it meant you had money to buy chocolate raisins in the cinema. And if you went by bus, you didn't. So more often than not, I went by bike. And at that point, films used to change on a Sunday. So you could see a film on a Saturday... And then the same cinema will be showing a different film on the Sunday, but then, of course, it would be the same film the next Saturday. So if you juggled the cinemas, you know, just right, you could see a different film every Saturday and every Sunday. It was absolutely perfect. And I had a rule, which was I tried to go to the cinema as often as I could, and I would see anything at all as long as it was a certificate that I could get in, so a U or an A. Now, a little bit of history... Back in the early 1970s, A-certificate films meant that if you were under 14, you had to be accompanied by an adult. This was meant to be for the protection of of young viewers. Although, weirdly enough, what it actually meant was that young viewers would often hang around outside cinemas waiting for some random adult stranger to accompany them into the cinema, because somehow that was okay. Anyway, I went to go and see a film called Break Heart Pass, it starred Charles Bronson. It was a Western. I knew nothing about it at all. I wasn't a huge Westerns fan, but it was on. And it was a Sunday afternoon. And I got my bicycle, and I cycled to the Odeon in Hendon. Years later, and I think I'm right in saying this, Toya Wilcox bought the Odeon in Hendon and turned it into a recording studio. 
Now, that might be completely apocryphal, but everyone I know who used to go to that cinema at the same time remembered a similar story. Anyway, I cycled to the Odeon Hendon to see Breakheart Pass. To begin with, <gasps> trust no one. Don't. And believe half Outside. of what you see. <laughs> because nothing is as it appears. And nobody is who they seem to be. He needs what? Now, from the master of action, suspense, and surprises, Charles Bronson in Alistair MacLean's Break Heart Pass. Back then, I always went to see the supporting movie as well because you never knew what the supporting feature was going to be. It was a weird thing. The supporting feature was sometimes more interesting than the main feature. What they'd often do is they would put out like a, a little independent film that maybe hadn't got a proper release or, or maybe a reissued film. Sometimes they would cut it down. I mean, remember, The Wicker Man was actually first available to British audiences as the second part of a double bill with Don't Look Now. That's how The Wicker Man got cut down to the, whatever it is, 85-minute version that we all lived with for such a long time until Christopher Lee insisted that people stuck it back in a whole bunch of scenes of him talking to an apple. So originally, The Wicker Man was a B picture. So back then, you always wanted to see the supporting feature because you didn't know, you know, it might be something really good. It might be like the Bellstone Fox. Or, or I remember there was a film called Clones, which went out as a supporting feature with, I think it was with Rollerball. So it would often be something in the same genre or something connected or maybe completely disconnected because it was just the same studio. Anyway, Breakheart Pass must have been a United Artists film. And I know this because the supporting feature that day was a film about which I knew nothing except that it was called Jeremy. And I went into the cinema, it must have been like two o'clock in the afternoon, and so it meant that Breakheart Pass would start at about four, there'd be some adverts, then we'd get the supporting feature, and then we'd see Breakheart Pass. I'd finish at about 5.30, 6 o'clock, I'd be home in time for tea. So the film starts playing, and I, I know nothing about it at all. And incidentally... This is going to be full of plot spoilers, but that's fine because you're not going to see Jeremy, so it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to spoil it for you. I guarantee you're not going to see it because nobody's seen Jeremy. Well, a very small number of people have seen Jeremy. You're not going to see Jeremy. And if you do, it won't be spoiled by the fact that I'm going to tell you how much I love it. Anyway, so the story begins, and there's this kid, and he's played by Robbie Benson. I've never heard of Robbie Benson. In fact, it's not till decades later that I discover that Robbie Benson would grow up to be very, very famous. He was the voice of Beast in Beauty and the Beast. He, he has a singing and acting career all of his own. Anyway, he's at the School of Performing Arts, like a kind of pre-fame thing in, uh, in New York. I think maybe it's Juilliard. And he's a cellist. And he's a bit nerdy and a bit gawky and a bit geeky. And uh, I immediately identify with him because he's, he's all the things that I think that I am. And he goes to this performing school and then he meets this girl and she's called Susan. In fact, in some versions of the film, the film is called Jeremy and Susan or Susan and Jeremy. And she's played by Glynis O'Connor, who would subsequently also go on to be a very, very famous actress, which I didn't know until decades later. So Robbie Benson, Glynis O'Connor, young boy, young girl, they meet, she's a dancer, he's a cellist. He is completely besotted by her. She's obviously unobtainable. She sees in him something that she doesn't see in other boys. They fall in love. Oh, you scared me. Oh, gee, I'm sorry. 
scared me. Oh, I'm sorry. What are you doing here? I don't know. It's just brilliant. They, they fall in love. And then, and again, I'm sorry to spoil the plot, but as I said, you're not going to see it, so it doesn't matter. Then, just at the moment that they have fallen in love and decided that they are set to spend the rest of their lives together, her father decides to move back to, I think it's Chicago, and she leaves. The end. And it's utterly heartbreaking. I know that I'm talking about it in a way that makes it sound slightly flippant, but, but there was nothing flippant about the experience of watching it. I knew nothing about the film at all. I completely invested in the character of Jeremy. I completely fell in love with the character of Susan. I watched them falling in love with each other and completely bought into the film. And then suddenly her dad says, I'm moving back to Chicago or wherever it is. And she goes and she leaves him. And the film literally ends with them at the airport. And she says, promise me you'll never forget me. And he says, how can you say that? And then she goes through the gates. And it's the end. Don't worry, she'll get over it. He's a nice boy. Just say that you'll never forget me. How can you say that? Susan, I love you. All the other passengers have boarded, sir, so please hurry. Thank you very much. Right through that door. And then... On comes the advert for Kiora, and on comes the advert for Frankie's hot dog, or whatever it is. And the next thing is two hours of Charles Bronson farting around in something called Breakheart Pass, which I wasn't interested in because my heart had already been broken by Jeremy. So I literally sat there watching the main feature, unable to concentrate. I can't tell you a single thing about Breakheart Pass. Not one thing. I can't tell you the plot. I can't tell you the character. It's probably got a train in it, has it? I don't know. Breakheart Pass. Maybe a horse. I, nothing, nothing, nothing remains at all. Because my entire mood was coloured by Jeremy. And I cycled back home. If I think I might have even walked to make the journey longer. I was bereft. I was completely heartbroken and completely mesmerised. And the next thing, the film was gone. It was a supporting feature. This is the days before the internet. This is the days before video recordings. This is the days before... You know, you could just find out anything about any movie ever by just going online. Jeremy disappeared. So I saw it once, once only, knew nothing about it, didn't know who made it, didn't know who was in it, didn't know who wrote, nothing at all. I just knew that it had profoundly affected me. And for years, I would kind of cherish the memory of this heartbreaking film that was kind of, I suppose it had a similar feel to like Love Story. You know, Love Story, you know at the beginning that it's all going to end tragically. And Jeremy had that same kind of, you know, doomed love story thing to it. It also had a theme tune that it turns out was sung by Robbie Benton. Again, I didn't know that at the time. This thing called the Blue Balloon. I have a blue balloon, a happy tune. And the theme tune's particularly haunting because 
The version that they use in the film, it turns out, was the very first version that he recorded of it. In fact, he didn't like the recording of it because he thought his voice sounded like it was just warming up and like it was breaking. But they said, oh, no, no, we love it. We love it because the whole point is it sounds exactly like that. It sounds like some nervous, nerdy, adolescent kid trying to sing a song and not doing it perfectly. Said goodbye. Let us be Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Anyway, years went by. And uh, I didn't find out anything more about this film, Jeremy. And then one day I was sitting with my good friend Alan Jones and we were talking about films that we both liked. And I said, there's this film that I love, but I only ever saw it once called Jeremy. And Alan went, I love Jeremy. And Alan suddenly went into this whole loop about how he loved it and how it had come out at the same time as American Graffiti. And it, the, the smart money was on understanding that Jeremy was the better coming of age film. And also, he said, you know, that film was really well-reviewed. Not here in the UK, where it was just a supporting feature, but it was really well-reviewed, and I didn't know this. So I started trying to research it, and it turned out that it had got some incredibly good reviews. I mean, like, really rave reviews from big American critics who just thought it was really terrific and sublime and heartbreaking and innocent and honest and, and, I mean, really big, proper American critics loving it. And then I started trying to research it and find out about it. I discovered that it played at the Cannes Film Festival. I discovered that there was a controversy about who had or hadn't directed the film. The film is actually credited to Arthur Barron, but it didn't start being made by Arthur Barron. It was started being made by somebody else, and there was a thing about who had actually directed it and also who had written it, and there were all these kind of weird stories behind it. But there was a poster for it that advertised the film as a film, as I said, Jeremy, a film that has nothing going for it except the people who love it. And then this series of quotes, a series of quotes from all these American critics who loved it. And this started to make me think, like, well, I must have been quite smart because I was 11 years old and I had never heard of this film, but I thought it was brilliant, and apparently it is. Anyway, jump forward several years. I'm doing a piece for The Culture Show with Todd Haynes, and Todd Haynes has just made, maybe it's... Velvet Goldmine, I think that's right. Anyway, we get sent to a record store in Wardour Street to browse through some vintage vinyl. 
and they just want some shots of me and Todd browsing through records. And we're both looking through adjacent bins. And suddenly, I find a copy of the soundtrack album for Jeremy. And I, my heart leaps, and I reach to grab it. And at exactly the same time, Todd Haynes reaches to grab it as well. And we both got our hands on this, on this LP sleeve. And I go, you, don't tell me you know this movie. He says, I love this movie. I love this. I said, You've, another person who's seen Jeremy. This is incredible. And then we look inside the sleeve, and it's empty. It's an empty sleeve. There's no record in it. And there's a momentary tussle about who's going to get to keep the sleeve. And Todd Haynes says, you know, I, I, I love this film so much. And I said, I saw this film when I was 11 years old, and it had a really profound effect on me, and I'm keeping the sleeve. We take the sleeve up to the counter, and the guy says, there's no record in it. I go, I know, but I want the sleeve. Sometime later, somebody actually found me a pristine copy of the soundtrack album with, with the record as well, with a different cover, incidentally. So anyway, so now I know that Todd Haynes loves this film as well. I still haven't seen it again since I was 11 years old, and I'm now like 40-something. Fast forward another 5, 10 years. I'm programming a film at the QFT in Belfast. I do this thing in Belfast every year as part of the Cinemagic Festival, which is that I program a film that has to be okay for all audiences. So it can be a, a, what's now a, a PG certificate movie or a 12A or something. But back then, films that would have been a U or an A. And I've done things like Silent Running, and I think at one point we did A Matter of Life and Death, and we, we did um, The Red Turtle. But one year, it's about five years ago now, maybe, maybe longer ago, they ring up and they say, you know, do you have a film suggestion? And, I, and I, off the top of my head, I didn't have anything at all. And then I said, you know, there's this film that I saw like years and years ago. And I, 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 I don't even know whether it still exists because it's, it's not available anywhere. But it's called Jeremy. And I love it. And Alan Jones loved it. And it turns out Todd Haynes loves it. And, I, you know, I don't know whether there's a print. Can you have a look? Because one of the things we wanted to do, because the QFT shows 35mm films, and I have this great joy of you know, showing things on 35, because I think 35 is a, is a wonderful medium. Anyway, about a week later, I get a phone call from the QFT, and they go, we found a copy of Jeremy. Do you want to show it as your, as, your, as your film at Cinemagic? And I go, yeah. And then immediately I regret it, because immediately I think, I have no idea whether this film is any good. I was 11 when I saw it. There's plenty of things that I liked when I was 11 that I now think... I mean, you know, the first pop record I ever bought was Jealous Mind by Alvin Stardust. I mean, I thought it was brilliant when I was 11. I'm not entirely sure that it stands the test of time. Although that said, I still quite like it. Anyway, I agreed to do it, and then I spent weeks worrying about whether or not this was going to be a disaster. Then I got to the QFT... And they had not one, but two prints of Jeremy. And one of them looked like it had never been played, looked like it had never been through a projector. It had tags on it, and it, was, it looked absolutely pristine. And the projectionist said, look, I think what's happened is that the film must have passed from one catalogue into another, and this, this looks like it was, it was a new print that was struck for maybe for telecine or something. But it, it's never been played. Look at it. 
So suddenly I'm there in the QFT in Belfast with a pristine print of this film that I haven't seen since I was 11 that was shot on 16mm, was blown up to 35 and that I have no idea whether it's any good. So I stand up at the beginning of the screening and I say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to this screening. I'm going to show you a film that I, I meant a lot to me when I was 11 and I don't know whether it's going to be any good or not. And so it wasn't so much an introduction as an apology. And everyone looked at me like, yeah, okay, get on with it. And then I went and sat at the back of the screening and the film started playing. And literally from the first frame from the first note of the score and the beginning of Blue Balloon, from the very first image of Jeremy waking up in his bedroom and looking out at the New York skyline, I was back in the Hendon Odeon. It was, I mean, people talk about Proustian Madelines and all the rest of it. I was transported as if by a time machine back to the Hendon Odeon in 1974... And the, the effect was overwhelming. I mean, it was utterly overwhelming. And the film played out exactly, exactly as I remembered it. It was like it had imprinted itself directly onto my brain the first time I saw it. And it was like meeting a friend that I hadn't seen in 40 years, but a heartbreaking friend. And every single beat of the film was exactly as I remembered it. And I'd only ever seen it once. I hope you had fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Don't say thanks. Come on, okay? I mean, I didn't do anything. Yes, you did. What did I do? You made me happy tonight. Tonight was beautiful. You know what's beautiful? You're beautiful. It was so, it was so peculiar. And then it gets towards the end. They fall in love. It's all great. The father says he's going to move back to wherever it is, Chicago. And then they're at the airport, and she says promise me you'll never forget me and he says how can you say that and then the plane goes and then he's out on the street and the film ends and and the lights went up and I was in floods of tears I mean almost inconsolable it was like some really metaphysically profound experience then when the screening finished because the QFT audience are really lovely and they always want to talk about films afterwards and you know I had to go out to the foyer and, and kind of meet people and, and talk about it. But, I, I mean, I, I just looked like I'd been through the most profoundly emotional experience of my life. And people take selfies, which is fine. That's all kind of very nice. All over Belfast, there are people who've got selfies of themselves with me. It just, my face awash with tears. Now, the strange thing about Jeremy is this. Sometime later, I did a program for the... BBC called Celluloid Jukebox and I said I really really want to to play the theme from Jeremy and it was a a program about playing pop music from movies because that theme from Jeremy the Blue Balloon had such a big effect on me and Nick who is the producer of that program who's producing this podcast right now is sitting in the room with me now say hello Nick 
Hello, Mark. Nick said, let's see if we can find Robbie Benson. And we did. We found Robbie Benson. It wasn't that hard. Turns out he's really famous. And Robbie Benson agreed to do a down-the-line interview with us. And I got on the line to Robbie Benson, and I said, I love Jeremy. And he said, oh, that's great. And I said, it's, it's such an innocent and wonderful film, and it's so heartbreaking. Can you tell me about what you remember about making it? And he told me that this making of the film had actually been something of a nightmare, something kind of unpleasant. The original guy who was the director before, Arthur Barron, was a creep who did not come to a good end. He told me a story about how an awful lot of the film was made by the guy saying, OK, well, what would Jeremy do now? And what would Jeremy do now? And then, and then Robbie Benson was, oh, he would do this. Then he would do this. They go, oh, yeah, fine, fine. And then they'd write it into the script. So he basically wrote the script. And there was some kind of creepy background stuff going on. And then there was this whole fight about who owned the film. And then at Cannes, somebody stood up and said, I directed the film. And there was a big sort of set to about it. And he said, the whole experience was actually not good. And I said, but it, it's such a sweet film. And he said, the reason that you get that is because me and Glynis O'Connor actually did fall in love. And what you see on the film is actually us falling in love with each other. And the sweetness of that cuts through all the other stuff about the fact that the production was made on the cheap, on the fly, by not entirely reputable people who were, you know, filming when they didn't have permits and basically not creating what could be called a healthy working environment. Now, later on, Robbie Benson and Glynis O'Connor made another film together called The Ballad of Billy Joe, which he also described as a not terrific experience, but he said that as far as Jeremy was concerned, despite all the bad memories he had of making it, he could only think of it in a good light because he and Glynis O'Connor had fallen in love and they were then boyfriend and girlfriend for quite a while and that's what you see on the film. And I thought it was kind of interesting that something I'd always thought of as being a really sweet film actually had a kind of dark backstory to it of infighting and unpleasantness and deception and duplicity. But none of that comes through because, well, at the centre of it is a story about two people falling in love. Anyway, as I said, you're never going to see Jeremy, and that's fine because nobody's seen Jeremy apart from me and Alan Jones and Todd Haynes and all those American critics who liked it when it first came out, who loved it when it first came out, and, of course, Robbie Benson and, of course, Glynis O'Connor. But here's the thing. The important thing is not what the film itself actually is, but what the film means and meant to me. See, I have this feeling that films are like pop records and that you will never love any film or song as much as you will the films or songs you first encounter when you're at that period, 11, 12, 13, 14. I remember all the first pop records I bought. I remember Jealous Mind by Alvin Stardust. I remember This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us by Sparks. I remember Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes. Every single one of every single notes of those records is etched indelibly into my mind. And every frame of the films that affected me back then is etched indelibly into my mind. And at the center of it is Jeremy. I thought you said you weren't going to see him anymore. I, I haven't been seeing him since I started going out with you. 
Yeah, well. Ralphie said that he saw you with him yesterday. After school. Oh, that. I just had to speak to him. Did you tell him you weren't going to see him anymore? I told him something much better than that. What? I told him that I loved you. Did you really tell him that? I really told him that. Do you really love me? Okay. So here's my kind of closing thought on this. It doesn't matter whether Jeremy is a good or a bad film. It doesn't matter whether the production itself was a positive or a negative experience. It doesn't matter that it fell into fights about who wrote what and who shot what and who did what. None of that matters. What matters is that when I was 11, it meant a huge amount to me. And when I bumped into it again at the age of 40 or 50, whatever it was, it was like meeting an old friend and everything came flooding back. So my question is this, what's your version of that film? What's the film that did that to you? What's the film that had that effect on you? This feature is called 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. But actually for this particular episode, it's 2001 movies plus the one movie that only you ever really got. And as long as you saw it, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Thanks for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. Do get in touch with me and let me know which film meant the most to you when you were that age. The best way to do it is through Twitter. I'm at Kermode Movie. And if you've enjoyed the Kermit on Film podcast, tell your friends and remember to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Keep watching the skies. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.